Hebrews chapter 2, we've read the passage before us, verse 14 through 18. Let me start with a prayer. Oh God, unveil your truth to us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and thereby change everyone by the power of your word. That's our hope, that's our expectation, that's our desire. We ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. For the vast majority of people in our world, what we read of in these verses is totally unfamiliar territory. That's because for the majority of people, they're not familiar with the Old Testament and more than that, are not Jewish. God dealt with Israel as he did with no other nation. Earlier in our service, we read the opening portion of Romans chapter 9 where it outlines the specific individual blessings that God gave to Israel as he gave to no other nation. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, the Bible says, God speaking, um, you only have I known among the nations. God speaking to his people. The word know there is a word that speaks of redemption, of covenant relationship. It's not as if he didn't know of other nations. Of course, he's omniscient, he knows everything, But only with Israel did he have a redemptive knowledge, knowledge in the sense of a covenant. It's interesting too, in John chapter 4, in Jesus' words with the woman of Samaria, he said immortal words, John chapter 4 verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. Basically, your Bible is a Jewish book. You have a Jewish Messiah. You and I have come into something that is not ours by normal extension physically. We've become children of God if we've believed on the Lord Jesus because of the grace of God and God grafting us in as a wild branch, as Romans portrays it. From the time of Abraham, who was really the first Jew, God has been dealing with Israel redemptively, and he did this for no other nation. We think, well, why would he not just wait for America to show up or China or Belgium and all of that. God says, I will do what I want to do and you only, Israel, are who I'm dealing with redemptively. And for us to come to God, we have to come to the Jewish Messiah. When we even say Jesus Christ, the word Christ is a title and it means Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. All of this is a big deal, and I want to explain why today. As we approach God, do you realize this? We can only do so because we have a high priest. That's foreign to us as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, but for Israel, they understood this. When God called Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, and then we see the patriarchs, we see the rise of Moses, we see the tabernacle. God was very specific about what he wanted done in religious service. I once had a conversation with a lady and she uh, asked me what I did for a living. That always is uh, either a a way to talk more or that's the end of everything when I say I'm a pastor. And her response after hearing that was, well, I'm not into organized religion. My response was, oh, so you're into disorganized religion. She didn't like that. 
But it's true. God has set up things in the Old and in the New Testament His way. And He does not ask what we would like to do. He commands us to do what He commands us to do and does not ask if that's convenient, if it's in our schedule, if it's the way we would like. He never says to anyone, be creative, go down to Home Depot and uh, raise up a tabernacle, any color you like. No, it was very specific. And as you and I read through our Bibles, maybe at the start of a year, we might go through Genesis and we get through that because it's exciting and there's a few things to get through, but it's uh, exciting all the way. And then Exodus, how can you not be excited over the plagues? But somewhere at the end of Exodus and then into Leviticus, the juggernaut slows and we get to the place where we think, I don't know if I can get through this. The way to get through Leviticus, let me give you a, a little clue. This was a manual for Levitical priests on how to stay alive. That's what it was. And you do this God's way, and you'll be here to tell the story. And if you don't, like Nadab and Habihu in chapter 10, God just nuked them. God just dealt with them and killed them on the spot and was not interested in people grieving over it. He said, I will be hallowed among you. It's God's way or the highway. Oh, well, I am an American. I'm from the Western world. I do my own thing. You might do your own thing, and that's the problem. Or we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. God does not invite us to choose our own religion. He's Uh, revealed himself and his truth and his word and says, come to me on my terms. One of the things we don't get as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, is our need for a high priest. What I want to bring out is this. You might have come to Christ and you may not have any knowledge of anything beyond the Lord Jesus and his saving role and his lordship. You've come to him as Savior and Lord. But in coming to him, God knows and the Bible reveals You've come to him, and he has performed the ministry of a high priest on your behalf. You and I cannot get to God without a priest. And that's shocking to our ears, because we think, I'll do things my way, and God says, you will not come to me unless you understand my terms. The book of Hebrews asks this question, what would we lose? What would we not Known if we didn't have the book of Hebrews? The answer is so, so much. Hebrews is actually a sermon written for Jewish people, for Jewish believers. And the message was there's no one to go back to, there's nothing to go back to. And it's really a long tract of sorts for the Jewish community. If you were thinking, what would I say to Jews? I don't think you could have come up with a better sermon than the book of Hebrews, and that's what it was. In fact, if you wanted to reach Jews, this is what you'd write, the book of Hebrews. There's a divine author, God, and there's a human author, and both had a purpose and they coincided. And one of the things we see very, very clearly as we look at this wonderful book of the New Testament is the major theme. And the major theme is that Jesus is better better than angels, better than Moses. There's a new covenant that's better than the old covenant, and on and on and on we can go with that. But a great central theme of the book is 
Jesus in his role as high priest. In fact, I would say that's the central theme in this letter. It's used 18 times. If you have the handout, you look on the second side, and there are nine words, and this is one of the ways to get hold of a book in your Bible, outline the key words and find out where they are in the book, and it gives you an idea of where the book is and where you're reading. In the occurrence of words, I've listed nine of them, the first being high priest, and the first mention of that term is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 in our text today. And then we see it goes all the way through to the end of the book. Chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 13. 18 times the phrase, the words, high priest, occurs. Then you go to others and you realize that's not the case with other words. Swear an oath, number 3. Chapter 3, 4, 6, and 7, and that's about it. Covenant starts at chapter 7, then into 8, 9, 10, and then 13. And you can do that with these words, and you realize that's what is being focused upon when you come to that word covenant. It starts in chapter 7 and on to the end of the book. So that's just for your edification. But this theme of high priest is so vital that we as Gentiles don't get it. I've said it already, and it's worth repeating. We don't get the need for a high priest. We just think, I can come whenever I want. Well, you can now because there is a high priest who lives and is interceding for you and I as the people of God. He lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us, and he's now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father in his role as the high priest. It's a wonderful thought. As we go to the text, look at verse 16. It's the end of a thought regarding Jesus and him being the captain of our salvation and has brought liberty from the fear of death for all his people. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring, the descendant, the seed of Abraham. Jesus came to help, to identify with us fully. And that's the context in verse 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. God became a man. The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. And in verse 16, it's an understanding that it's not angels that he helps. He didn't become an angel to save angel. Do you realize no fallen angel will ever be redeemed because God didn't help angels. He didn't become an angel to save and redeem angels. And there are no revolts in heaven over this. God does not have to show mercy. There are no angels walking around the throne petitioning God. You need to do what you did for man and do it for angels. No, God has no... Uh, need to supply mercy to anyone. It should be a wonder of wonders, and it is that God has been merciful to anyone, that anyone who has fallen is redeemed. But it's not angels who will ever be redeemed. There is no plan to redeem the devil or demons. But there is a plan to save a people, and God has enacted it, and enacted it even before the foundation of the world, choosing a people to save it's an amazing thing. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps 
the seed of Abraham. book of Galatians says, if you are Christ's, in other words, if you belong to Christ, verse 29, Galatians 3, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He came for you. He lived for you, died for you, rose for you, ascended for you, and is, a, is now interceding for you. And he is here for your help. And we'll see that as verse 18 elaborates more. So, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And again, in the context, God has been very gracious to us in showing the, superior, the superiority of Christ to angels. And uh, that is something that is outlined in both 1 and 2 in terms of the chapters. And the author re- re- refers back to that theme. He is not helping angels. He helps the offspring of Abraham. I want to ask you, are you one of those he helps? Are you a child, the seed of Abraham? Well, how would I know? Have you believed on Christ? You could only do that if God was merciful to you and showed you Christ as a treasure for your heart. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He didn't become like angels. He became like the brothers, like the family, in every respect. He was fully, he was truly man as well as truly God. And what was the purpose? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a mouthful. There's so much in here and I will not exhaust all that's in here today. But if Hebrews was not in our Bible, there would be much we would not know. The book of Hebrews is really the only place where we have an outlining, a revealing of Jesus in his high priestly ministry. Just think of your Bible without the book of Hebrews and we would not know so, so much. There's a couple of references, maybe one or two, three, in our New Testament regarding high priest, but it's really just a historical recording of who was serving as high priest, but there's no real understanding of Jesus as high priest. That we find in Hebrews. We know little to nothing about Jesus in his role as high priest, apart from the book of Hebrews. To understand Hebrews, which is why many preachers won't preach through the book, you've got to have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And most Christians don't have too much in that, but we want to remedy that. If you go back in your Bibles, hold your place in the book of Hebrews to the second book of your Bible, book of Exodus, And chapter 25. In this chapter, the Lord is outlining stipulations about the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the golden lampstand. And then finally, Moses is told this, verse 40, end verse of the chapter. See that you make them, that's all of the articles, Exodus 25 verse 40, after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. There's a pattern and it's being shown. Moses was not asked to be creative. He was asked to see something. 
And what he saw, he was to make ready in the physical realm. Keep your place there. Back to Hebrews for a moment, because this is a verse outlined in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be going back and forth between the Old and the New Testament today. Hebrews chapter 8, and look at verse 1 with me. Now the point in what we are saying is this. By the way, I love that. You're reading and you think this is a lot to take in, and then he says, look, here's the main point. Are you getting it? Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is speaking of the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly was merely a copy. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Man made a copy on earth, but God made the true, and it's in heaven. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Make a note of that. That's the function of the high priest. He's to offer gifts and sacrifices. We are not permitted to just offer sacrifices ourselves. More on that in a moment. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus is not fulfilling his role right now on earth because there are, or they were, at the writing, priests on earth fulfilling a Levitical function. But he's in heaven... And uh, his uh, high priestly ministry is far superior. If he were on earth, he'd not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow. Make a note of that. A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Lord willing, in time we'll come to chapter 8 and look at that in more detail. If you have kept your place in Exodus, go to chapter 28. There's many places we could go regarding the high priest but this is perhaps the most full expression in our Bibles. We've already seen the function of a priest is to offer sacrifice on behalf of man and to offer gifts. And before we launch into Exodus 28, let me say this. Only, essentially, only a priest was qualified to offer a sacrifice. That's stunning. And in our Western world, we think, well, I can do what I like. I can bring an offering when I like what it is. I can do what I want to do. And God is very specific. No, you must come through the mediatory ministry of a high priest. You remember King Saul? He was removed from the throne because while a king... He was not a priest 
and he offered a sacrifice. He lost his throne over this. Big stuff, big deal. He overstepped the boundary, usurping the office of a priest and offered a sacrifice. You read of that in 1 Samuel. So God is very, very clear. Even though he was the Lord's anointed king, King Saul, God removed him from his office because he offered sacrifice and he was not a priest and could not do so legally. So, the Old Testament is a picture, it's a copy, it's a shadow of Jesus as our high priest in heaven. If you've ever studied the tabernacle, there are reams and reams of material available regarding that study of the tabernacle, and all of it points to the Lord Jesus. All of it. Two things we need to understand, and this is again so foreign to our thinking. But God is the God of the Jews. He set this up to explain that you cannot come to God without a priest and without a covenant. Two massive things. A priest and a covenant. Not everybody realizes this, but that's the fact nonetheless. You might be a youngster, you might be middle-aged, you might be a little older than that, and you say a prayer, Lord Jesus, I receive you, you're my Lord and Savior, I repent and I believe in you. You may not mention the word priest, but in coming to Jesus, you understand, you're coming to him as the high priest. That's a wonderful thing. So a priest offers sacrifices for sin, sin being the barrier. Sin is big. Sin is much bigger than we realize. And the only remedy is a God-appointed sacrifice. You might say, well, I don't want to bring a lamb if you're in the Old Testament period and God says that's the way it'll be, an unblemished lamb. Well, I don't have any lambs. I've, I've got other animals in my farm. doesn't matter. You find an unblemished lamb. And you find a priest and you find a legitimate priest, one who goes through the rituals of cleansing because he is a sinner himself so that he is ceremonially made clean and then can offer a sacrifice on your behalf. What sacrifice? What God commanded. And here's the big deal. Nothing is different in the New Testament. We just have the abolishment of lambs for sacrifice with the lamb being sacrificed for us. And Jesus brings that sacrifice, not of anyone else, but of himself as the lamb. He offered up not something, he offered up himself. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice offered. And he fulfilled every type and shadow and cup, everything of the old in his ministry. Wow. That sin issue must be dealt with by an authorized priest and an offering and a sacrifice that was authorized by God. And I'm just wanting to stress this. We are totally dependent on an authorized priesthood to approach God. It's essential. The origin of the tabernacle is in heaven, the copy on earth. All right, have you found Exodus 28 yet? Look in the opening verses, and you'll see six garments are laid out. Verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
Eleazar and Ithamar, the first two were killed, by the way. Leviticus 10 outlines that. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. These are set aside for holy purposes. For Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, you shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. And it lists them. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work. And as you're reading this, you can see the picture on the handout. A turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. And they shall receive gold, purple, excuse me, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of purple and blue and scarlet yarns and of fine twisted linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be like it and it be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. And then it goes on. The, uh, the designations are outlined. If you notice, six garments are mentioned. Breastpiece, the ephod or ephod, the robe, the tunic, the turban, which went on the head, and a sash. And I've learned, and others have learned, if you find six, look for a seventh. Kind of the signature of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. If you go back to, uh, back down to verse 36, you read these words. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So a pure gold plate was engraved with these words, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban, on the head, by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. So there's the seventh. The ephod, verse 6, back in uh, Exodus 28, verse 6, that was a distinctly priestly garment, and it covered from the top of the chest down to the hips, and it was held in place by two shoulder bands tied around the waist with a sash. Verse 7 is then joined to make a single garment. The waistband is part of the ephod, and it was not detachable. Then verses 9 through 12, the names of the tribes were written. Let's look at verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. Verse 11. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So the twelve tribes, their names were established and the high priest wore them, wore those names as he went into the presence of God and made sacrifice. The names of the twelve. 
Now, it was not the Canaanites, the Jebusites, it was none of the otherites around them, it was the people of Israel and the twelve tribes. And in making intercession and then making sacrifice, the high priest would one day a year, you know the day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, he would make the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of the people. But he would be wearing the names of the twelve tribes as he went in to the presence of God. John chapter 17, no need to turn there. It's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he did the same thing. He made intercession for the people. He says in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for the ones you gave me out of the world. And then that same day, according to the Jewish clock, he made sacrifice. Six o'clock is the time when the day starts for the Jew. And he prayed at night and died in the morning the same day, fulfilling the type of the high priest. He prayed for his people and he died for his people and he rose for his people and he intercedes for us today. I love that phrase on the shoulder because it reminds me of certain passages like Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 where the Bible says the government shall be upon his shoulder. He can handle it. He can handle all of the weight of the pressure of the responsibility. Verse 15 of Exodus 28 speaks of the breast peace and the names over the heart representing love and loyalty. Verse 15 you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. And verse 21. There shall be twelve stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. So this was very, very personal. I want to say this. The cross was very personal. He came personally and died personally for his people with a powerful, effective atonement. As we read verse 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts, it shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Now, I want to say this. The offering of the high priest was accepted because of the holiness of the high priest, not the holiness of the people. He had become ceremonially clean through various acts that the Lord had prescribed and commanded. And because... He had done that and done that rightly. His sacrifices were accepted. Verse 40 speaks of the fact that other priests will not be wearing that breastpiece and ephod and turban, but the high priest did. So as we think about that, see the analogy of what God did for us in the person of Jesus. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews. He helps the seed of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 2 again. Verse 
all I've said would be known to Jews and they would understand this. Most of us are not really familiar with it unless we've really studied and read the Old Testament. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. We have a high priest. If you're understanding the Jewish revelation of Scripture, that's shouting round. We have a high priest. We have a great priest, a merciful and faithful high priest. We should be saying, wow, we've got a high priest, rather than, well, I don't, I'm not really sure why we need that. Once you understand the need for a high priest and the fact that you have one, the ultimate one, the perfect one, it should send us Pentecostal. It should send us round, running around the building with our hands in the air. Don't do that, but it's exciting. We have a high priest. We have a high priest. We have a great high priest. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It becomes the theme. And what did God do for us in Jesus? He provided something called propitiation. See that in verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Just as you might work on cars and there's certain names and words you need to understand to be good at fixing cars. You need to know the difference between some parts of the engine and others. You need to know what a carburetor is. You need to know where the gas goes, where the water goes. You need to know the distinctions. And so it is with our Bibles. There are key words we need to learn and one of them is propitiation. You want to get me excited? Just send a text, propitiation. That'll do it. Oh yeah, you make my day. Because I understand it. Propitiation. It means the removal of wrath by means of a sacrifice. The removal of the anger of God because of a sacrifice. This is a term that you find not only in uh, the Old and the New Testament, but in many religions of the world. The idea being that if there is famine or if there is a drought or a lack of rain, then the God of rain has been displeased and is angry about something. And therefore you have to, as sad as it may be, in the mountains of some parts of South America, the young virgin girl is thrown into the mountain lava of the intense heat to satisfy the God of rain. And they have the mistaken belief that in doing that, the anger of the gods or the anger of the god of rain will be averted. Well, that's the falsehood. But the truth is what we read in the Bible. God is angry at sin. He has to punish sin. Otherwise, he's not good. And otherwise, he's not holy. And in the midst of that, though we deserved the anger of God because we're sinners, God sent his son into the world, to live a perfect life, and then on the cross, the sins of all those who would ever believe were laid on him, and he was punished in our place. It should have been me. should have been you. But it was Christ who died in our place, 
And the full anger of God was meted out on the Son. Not for his sin, he had none. But the Bible says, For he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the anger of God was meted out on the Son in our place. And for a number of hours, it's as if God and his Son did business. And it was not for the watching world to witness. It became very dark. God the Father and God the Son doing business as the Son was punished in our place. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment due to us was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That's the center of the center of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. In a verse, and a couple of verses found in Isaiah, written 700 years before the time of Christ. It's amazing. He propitiated sin. He didn't make, how would I say it, a potential propitiation. Yeah, there could be wrath removed if you do something. No, he died in the place of sinners and achieved full atonement for the seed of Abraham. Not everyone is the seed of Abraham, but he helps the seed of Abraham. And he helps those who are tempted. Propitiation is a wonderful word. And if you learn it, you will forever understand that God either will punish the sinner in hell forever, or your sin was punished in the Son of God on the cross. And because it was, for those who believe, we do not fear the anger of God. We might come under the discipline of God, that's another subject, but the anger of God, it's gone forever. Hallelujah. This is slightly exciting. Because I deserve to be banished from God forever. Were God to say, there's heaven and you shall never go there. The gate is locked and I'm throwing away the key. All I could say was this. I deserve that. The reason I know that will not happen to me is I've trusted in the perfect work of the perfect Savior who bore the wrath of God for me. 1 Peter 2.24 He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them. He didn't do it for everyone. He did it for his people. And this is a powerful atonement. Not merely trying, but in operation, save God's people. Jesus came, and as the angel said to Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus, Matthew 1.21, for he will save his people from their sins. I want to ask you, did he? Did he do it? He did it. He saved his people. And on the cross was able to shout in triumph, it is finished, it is done, it is forever done. I've paid it forever. Jesus made an actual propitiation. For who? For the sins of the people. He's a merciful and faithful high priest because he was tempted, as the book of Hebrews uh, spells out. Verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
You might say, but he never succumbed to sin. Does he really understand? Yeah, he does. Think about that for a moment. When is sin most heightened? When is the temptation to sin most heightened? Just before you break and do the wrong thing. It's like, okay, I'll do it, and we do what we shouldn't do, or we don't do what we should do. That's the nature of sin, sins of commission and sins of omission, things we do and things we should do and haven't done. But at that moment, when sin is lurking and it's right in our face, that is the height of sin. Because you know this, once you've surrendered to the temptation, the temptation to sin has gone away because you've bowed to it. And Jesus, in his life, was tempted beyond what we could ever be tempted. No one has been tempted by the devil like him. And yet, he didn't sin. So how is he able to identify us? Because he took the height of sin and its temptation and said no. The height of it. Let's go to Romans 3 and we'll wrap this up. Jesus made actual propitiation, not a potential one. And if it was only potential, it's not the same thing as the real deal. But because it is an actual propitiation, sinners will be punished for their sins. And it will not be double jeopardy, Jesus paying for it and them paying for it. Make sense? Romans 3, look at verse 20. Paul summing up his argument that no one comes to God by human works, things they do. For by works of the law, that's the doing of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. People have the mistaken idea that the way to get to God is to do a whole lot. And if you do enough, God will accept you. The Bible says... No one is justified, declared right in the sight of God, by the doing of the law, by the works of the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Sin is brought out into the open by means of the law. That would be bad news beyond bad, except for the next word in the passage, verse 21. But, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The law and the prophets said this was coming, and here it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified as a grace, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, what's the next word? Propitiation by his blood. God put Jesus forward as the way to avert the wrath of God by means of his blood, by means of his death on the cross, to be received by faith. That's it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. 
This was to show God's righteousness. How? God didn't say, I'm going to grade on a curve and most people aren't getting there, so I'm going to help you. No. God went to extreme measures to save by becoming a man, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death on the cross, rising again from the dead. And at the place of all authority in this universe commands us all to come to him. Come to me all, Jesus will say. And he's able to do it because his sacrifice will cover all who will come to him. This was to show God's righteousness. God didn't grade on a curve. God didn't say 68% is a pass. No. God demands 100% total, absolute obedience. And if you can't do that, you better find someone who can do it for you. So said my friend, Greg Francis. Perfection. Jesus said you must be perfect. Well, compared to Hitler, I'm almost there. No, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's Jesus' words. Well, no one's perfect. Yeah, and that's the problem. We have a perfectly holy God. But Jesus is the perfect Savior who lived the perfect life and provided the perfect sacrifice as the high priest bringing the offering of his own body as the sacrifice to avert the wrath of God for those who believe. It's fathomless. Verse 26, it was to show, well, we need to end verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. God treated David on the basis of what Christ would do. God treated Abraham on the basis of what Christ would do. But now he's come. He's done something. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Total injustice. Absolute just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's not faith in Jesus plus. It's faith in in Jesus period. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Why should we not boast? Well, we want to keep boasting to a minimum. You know, don't do too much of it. It's totally removed. It's totally excluded. We boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's excluded. How come you got to heaven? Well, I don't want to boast about it, but I've helped a lot of people, sowed a lot of good seed, faithful in my giving, faithful, faithful, faithful. That's kind of why I'm here. No, the saints understand. I don't know if Frank Sinatra is in heaven, but I know this, he'll not be permitted to sing I did it my way. (laughs) But he might be singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's a push in certain sectors of the church to remove all references to wrath, to propitiation, because they cannot understand what the ministry of the high priest was and why there's a need for God to redeem man based on the, the offering of a priest and a covenant. But if we understand Hebrews, we'll never make that mistake. 
What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold, we maintain, this is our conclusion, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, because it's on the basis of faith apart from the things that we do. Most of the TV ads and newspaper ads and internet ads, when they tell you there's a gift, there's something you have to do. It's free with your gift of this. Even sell Bibles. Free Bible with your gift of $100. (laughs) But this salvation is a grace gift. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Have you come to him? Have you understood? Verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? You'd think so if all you had was the Old Testament. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? What's the answer? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, they come in the same way. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's what I want you to see. Abraham was justified by Jesus Christ, even though he lived thousands of years before Jesus, because God treated Abraham on the basis of what he would do in his son. He believed God, Genesis 15, verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul's point in Romans 4 is this is not a new message. Justification by faith alone. Exhibit A is Abraham. Exhibit B is David. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his iniquity. It's not new. And that's why in heaven we'll be singing the same songs as Abraham of redemption. Because the same Christ saved him like he saves us in the exact same way. You know, in many churches you have different services. I was asked yesterday, how many services do you have in the morning? One. Um, And in many churches, they have a contemporary service, if you like an upbeat song. And some have a cowboy service, and you uh, sing like a cowboy, I guess. And others have a more mellow. Oh, yeah, that's my preference. I like a more mellow sound. I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but if there are Brazilians there, it's going to be a little bit rowdy. (laughs) And we won't leave the meeting. And Abraham will be there. And David. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. I don't know where they'll be, whether they'll be on the front row, I have no idea, but they'll be there. 
And we, the gathered children of God, will be there also. And there won't be a service for the Jews and a service for the Gentiles. God has made us both one through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we're in the kingdom of God because of Jesus in his work as high priest on our behalf, entering the holiest of all and bringing the blood of his own body as the sacrifice for sin so that we would forever, with one sacrifice, be redeemed. This is yet to come in the book of Hebrews. Let's finish with this, Hebrews chapter 10. Did he do it? Did he redeem? Hebrews 10 and verse 10. And by that will we, that's the people of God, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's not a repeated sacrifice. Once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. That's the Old Testament high priest. And every priest. Which can never take away sins. It covered, but it didn't take it away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In the tabernacle, there was no chair for the priest. His work was continual. But Jesus, not by eight sacrifices or the tenth one really worked, by his one sacrifice, he's able to sit down now and forever. Job done. Have you come to him? Christian, do you understand the role of Jesus as your high priest today? I hope you see that what God has done for you in Christ, whether you knew it before or not, is fathomless. It's a perfect work, perfect in every aspect, perfect in every respect. Like a beautiful diamond, it doesn't matter which way you look at it, from every view it's perfect. It's perfect in what it did for God and it's perfect in what it's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, as the high priest carried the names of the sons of Israel and made sacrifice, Jesus carried our names as he bore the sins of his people. He did so personally, powerfully, and he satisfied the wrath of God due to us now and forever. And we are a thankful people. In Jesus' name, amen.